Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Lloyd Grossman, one of our great Renaissance men. He's a television presenter, he's a rock guitarist, he's a pasta sauce magnate, and he's also, as his new book, An Elephant in Rome, Benini, the Pope and the Making of the Eternal City demonstrates, he's a formidable scholar and antiquarian. And his subject is, of course, another Renaissance man, or a Baroque man at least. This is the story of Benini. Lloyd, what was it that made you think this is the guy to write a book about? Where did you first fall in love with Bernini? Well, I sort of fell in love with one of Bernini's works before I actually knew it was by Bernini. I love Italy. And one of the strangest things in Rome, and Rome is full of very strange and intriguing things, is this um, rather large statue of an elephant in the Piazza della Minerva, which I first stumbled across, you know, accidentally on my very first trip to Rome. And subsequently, whenever I walked through that square, which I often did because the very excellent papal tailors are around the corner and they do rather beautiful socks in different sort of ecclesiastical colors. And on my way to the sock shop, I often sort of passed by this statue of an elephant and thought, what the heck is a statue of an elephant doing in the middle of a Roman square? So to satisfy my own curiosity, I began to try to answer that question. And it took me straight into the middle of 17th century Rome, about which I knew very little. I love learning. And it was fascinating for me to find out why that statue was there and how it fitted in with the whole general scheme of Baroque Rome and the Rome we love. I mean, it's, it's a story of the making of the city uh, as much as it is of, of one sculptor's life, isn't it? Because they're so entwined. Yeah, and I think, you know, it wasn't intended as such because, of course, things have changed hugely since I started writing it. What's particularly interesting now, Sam, I think, is the fact that, you know, for the first time in history, half the population of the world are living in cities. And because of the pandemic, we are now beginning to question the whole rationale for the existence of cities. We're beginning to look at the whole future of cities. You know, people are talking about more working from home, the, you know, the flight to the countryside, etc., etc. Yet cities are what have created and supported our civilization. Cities are what make museums possible, and opera houses and theaters and restaurants, etc., etc. So to look at a city in history like 17th century Rome and kind of question, you know, what makes it beautiful, inspiring, enriching is quite an important topic for the moment. Yeah. And, and you do set it in a kind of historical context. I mean, you know, Bernini, you know, he had a long career and he went through half a dozen popes, and you know, at least yeah. sig- significant relations with four of them. But, you know, you begin the arc a bit earlier because Rome was sort of decrepit before you know, lots of it was quite decrepit and in need of 
in need of change, wasn't it, before Bernini came along? I mean, yeah, Rome, Rome had got pretty shabby, and you know the population had shrunk. The city had really sort of turned in on itself, and there were some great popes who tried to revive Rome. You know, I suppose most notably the fabulously comically named Sixtus V, who was the first pope to begin planting obelisks in prominent spaces in order to provide clear guidance for pilgrims and tourists. But it was really Alexander VII, uh, with his, his forensic skills, his skills as a diplomat, his vision, who thought that the, the best way to combat what was very much the waning political power of the papacy, the best way to combat that was really through the invention of what we now call soft diplomacy, namely, look, Rome is no longer a great political power. It hasn't been for years a military power. It's not a diplomatic power. But I will make it the most significant cultural power, and that will hugely enhance the declining prestige of the church. And it was an amazingly innovative thing to do. And in order to do that, he found the greatest artist of his time, Bernini, gave him a blank checkbook, and they became the greatest artistic double act in history, each equally important. Yeah, I mean, your subtitle is Bernini, the Pope, and the making of the Eternal City. I mean, you're, it's clear that this relation of patronage was kind of hugely important to Bernini being able to do what he did. Yeah, because look, there wasn't a commercial market for art. The commercial market for art really didn't exist in a normal way until the 18th century. And if you were a great artist and you wanted to do big things, you had to find a great patron. And the greatest patron of all was the Pope. You know, Bernini was kind of a Mozart-like genius. I mean, as a child, he was creating very enthralling and impressive works of art. And he came to the attention of the papacy at a very early age. Successive popes employed him to do some wonderful stuff, but it was really the greatness of the vision of Alexander VII that enabled Bernini to totally fly and to create the amazing works that we still benefit from today. I mean, you've got photographs in the book of sculptures that Bernini made when he was sort of 12. He was so adept. And even at the age of 12, 13, 14, not only was he technically very clever, but he had this amazing psychological insight. You know, they are real portraits. They're not just icons. They're not symbols. They're not cliches. They're actually portraits that give you a real insight into the psychology of the person he's portraying. And that's amazing for a kid, you know, a teenager to do that is just fabulous, actually. Yeah, and he knew it. I mean, you, you say at one point early on, you know, Benini didn't talk himself down. In fact, he might have been, been a bit of a bore in conversation. Yeah, I think that, you know, in truth, modesty is not often a characteristic of great artists. And particularly, 
in the rough and tumble, you know, very violent and vicious and go-getting world of the 17th century, you didn't hide your light under a bushel. You know, either you permitted yourself or you fell by the wayside. And Bernini was a great self-promoter. I don't think he even knew what self-doubt was. He was the greatest, rather like, like Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. And you keep saying you're the greatest. And if you happen also to be the greatest, it's a winning combination. <laughs> There's a lovely sense you, you give early on of him setting out his stall. You know, one of his early big sculptures is his David. Yeah. As you read it, it's a direct riposte to Michelangelo's David. Yeah. You know, and actually, I mean, look, like everyone else, I've been kind of brought up to believe that, you know, Michelangelo's David is like the greatest thing ever. When you compare it to Bernini's David, I think it really, really pales because whereas Michelangelo's David is to me rather static and, it, you know, it's a Calvin Klein underwear ad, basically. <laughs> without the underwear. And without the underwear. And Bernini's David is full of tension and energy and ambition and ruthlessness and determination. It's so exciting, Bernini's David. And it's also a self-portrait. It is Bernini determined to take on, to slay the Goliaths of culture and to become top dog, which he did. So in this century, you know, he's living at the same time as Rembrandt and Velasquez and Vermeer, et cetera, et cetera. He gets to the position where he is regarded as the greatest artist in Europe. And that's pretty extraordinary. Tell me a bit about his origins, because it's it's a sort of, you know, family. I mean, you know, he didn't come from that much. You know, it's a family sculpting story as well. I mean, his father was a sculptor, as, as you described. Yeah, his father was a very good jobbing sculptor. His father had emerged from the more affluent end of Tuscan peasantry, was a very, very, very deft sculptor. Lacking in imagination, not very good at composition, but extremely good at execution. And at a time, you know, this is the Counter-Reformation. There's a lot of church building going on, a lot of church enrichment going on. Pietro Bernini, the father, goes to work in Naples. Naples at that time, I mean, we, it's hard to think about it now, but, you know, at that time, I think Naples was the most populated city in Europe and certainly one of the richest. So Pietro Bernini goes there to work and is very, very busy. And he's good enough to be brought to the notice of people in Rome, which of course is where everything is happening. And he comes to Rome to do a lot of work on the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore. Bernini, so at the age of five or six, little Gian Lorenzo comes to Rome and you know he grows up at the knee, at the ankle, whatever you want to call it, of a very busy sculptor who's working on one of the great Roman churches. So sculpture, the dust of marble, the sound of chisels is in little Bernini's blood from the time he can remember. Yeah. Bernini doesn't always appear as a hugely attractive character in this book, but he does have reserves of filial loyalty, doesn't he? It was quite late in his career. There's a lovely detail of his sticking up for one of his old dad's sculptures. Yeah, yeah, he's very good at protecting the family reputation. He's very bad at 
ever giving anyone other than God any credit. So he loves to talk about, you know, how God gave him his talents, etc., etc. He never really says, he never, never says, thanks, Dad. Yeah, but when, is it, which, is it the Pope who comes after Alexander the Seventh? Is it Clement? who yes. wants to knock down a kind of indifferent sculpture that his dad's made. Yeah, and Bernini leaps to the defense of it. But I think that's long after his father has died. And to me, it's kind of more about protecting the Bernini brand than about filial devotion. Right. You said, you know, he grew up with hammer and chisel sort of ringing in his ears. He seems to me a complete kind of workaholic or monomaniac. There's some quote you come up with that he says he sort of spent about two hours of his life or two months of his life not actually sculpting. <laughs> yes, yeah. He loved being in the studio. You know, he probably wasn't like the best father and husband. He was a workaholic. He was undeniably a genius possessed with demonic energy and an endless, endless supply of things he wanted to execute. And of course, being the most famous artist in Europe, there was a constant stream of commissions coming his way. And those commissions ranged from, you know, magnificent, huge urban projects like the Piazza of St. Peter's in Vatican City, down to designing a sort of looking glass for Queen Christina of Sweden. So, you know, he turned out a huge range of things and he wanted to enrich his family. He became very, very rich by the time he died. He had a magnificent house. He left a lot of money. He had a big family to support and, you know, he wanted to make it. He wanted to make it and making it was probably more important to him than having a cozy fireside chats with the no doubt long-suffering Mrs. Bernini. Before Mrs. Bernini, though, there was this one kind of extraordinary episode in his love life. Costanza, who he fell in love when he was in his mid-30s. He fell in love with this very voluptuous woman called Costanza. And this was great. They had this passionate love affair. There were two problems. Number one, she was married to his favorite assistant. And number two, she was also um, having a bit of a ding-dong with Bernini's brother. So this caused a huge scandal. I mean, Bernini found out that his brother was, you know, one of the people with whom he was being three-timed or two-timed. Bernini chased his brother through Rome, tried to kill him and failed. He, you know, rather unpleasantly, Bernini hired a thug to ambush Costanza and slash her across the face with a razor. She was sent to a home for fallen women. Bernini was merely ordered to get married to a respectable girl, and he did. It was pretty sordid, actually, but what it did produce was this magnificent portrait bust of Costanza, which is now in the Bargello Museum in Florence. And it's a remarkable work of art, firstly, because it's very intimate, it's, it's very highly sexually charged, but it's probably the first time in the history of Western sculpture that a portrait bust was made of an ordinary woman. 
because previously, you know, Marvel busts are a very big deal. Previously, the only subjects for Marvel busts would be gods and goddesses and members of royal or aristocratic families. And suddenly here with Bernini's bust of Costanza, you have a real normal woman of the 17th century immortalized in a Marvel bust. And it's a remarkable thing to see. You talk there about him doing something new. In what other ways was Bernini's genius something that changed things, something that brought in innovation artistically? I mean, we talk about the Baroque and Bernini as the pinnacle of that. What does that mean and what was what was new and important about it? Well, the Baroque is a really sort of astonishing moment in the history of art. It's much easier to recognise than to define and... As someone said, and I think it's quite a good definition, when there's a curve where you expect there to be a straight line, that's Baroque. Baroque, it's very expressive, it's very emotional, it's kind of irrational, it's very exciting, it's slightly, to use an anachronism, slightly kind of psychedelic in a way. It's an extreme, but extremely moving form of art. And what Benini did, which, you know, because there were a lot of other practitioners of Baroque, and indeed some of the German Baroque is more extreme than Roman Baroque, I think. But what Bernini did was he very much, he often combined architecture and sculpture and painting and lighting. And in an almost kind of cinematic way, he used all the arts to create an emotional effect. And this was something very, very new, very new which still moves us today, still affects us today. So, for example, when you look at the great, the Baldacchino, which is the bronze shelter over the high altar in St. Peter's, 30 meters of bronze, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary just in scale. When you look at it, you sort of think, well, what is it? Is it a building? Is it a work of sculpture? Is it decoration? What is it? And... Bernini brought all the arts together to create an incredible emotional effect on the spectator. Yeah. Now, you talk in the, in the book as well about how the Baroque strikes a kind of political moment as well, that it's a particular expression of how the church wanted to project itself through Rome and through the Roman built environment. But, you know, why is that? What made it distinctive? Because it's, it's, that's the Rome that substantially survives to today, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the church convenes the Council of Trent as a response to the Reformation. This is in the you know early to mid 16th century. And one of the things, the Council of Trent just goes on for decades, I think decades. And one of the things that emerges from the Council of Trent is the idea that imagery should be used actively by the church to encourage intensity of faith, encourage allegiance to the church. So this commitment, this ideological and policy commitment to the use of imagery gives birth to the Baroque, gives birth to the idea that, as someone said, the temples of faith should be more attractive than the temples of sin. And Baroque kind of really proves that. The downside of it, because, you know, very explicitly, the Baroque is, you know, kind of a propaganda instrument. 
The downside of it is the fact that the Baroque was always looked at with some suspicion in England because uh, the British, the English, looked at Baroque and they thought, no, 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 it's not for us. It's too much about the Catholic Church. It's too much about absolute rule. It's probably too emotional. We don't go for that sort of thing. So when you look at the English Baroque, as practiced by people like Hawksmore and Vanborough and Christopher Wren, it's rather well-mannered. English Baroque is terribly polite. I mean, it's awfully nice. You could actually bring English Baroque home. You could date English Baroque. <laughs> you would not introduce Italian Baroque to your parents. So the British have always had a little bit of a problem with full-blown Baroque, as marvelous as Blenheim and Castle Howard and St. Paul's Cathedral are, they are restrained Baroque, not crazy Baroque like you get in Italy and Germany. Yeah. It's a lovely detail. Your sense of a sort of Baroque aspect to the piazza outside St. Peter's. You say this kind of curved colonnade is intended to be almost sort of a pair of arms. Yeah, I mean, Bernini was very explicit. He said that, you know, when he was designing the colonnade, it is meant to represent the embracing arms of the church. It's meant to inspire the faithful. It's meant to encourage those who have left the church to come back. And although nowadays we wouldn't necessarily think of, the, of those colonnades explicitly as embracing arms, there is no question that anyone, anyone, whether they go to church or don't go to church or atheists or faithful or whatever, anyone standing in that square will feel this incredible sense of uplift and inspiration and spirituality. It's one of the most remarkable urban spaces in the world. And it shows the power of architecture to make life dramatic and to enhance life. And, you know, we're often in danger of losing the idea that architecture can really do wonderful, positive things for people. Now, there is a bit of a tug of love that goes on in the course of the book, which is interesting, seems to me, because it follows the sort of political shift in power. Louis XIV takes a fancy to Bernini, and the Pope can't really say no, can he, when Bernini has to go to France at one point. Yeah, Bernini has to go to France because Bernini is so famous that he becomes a sort of trophy in the European power struggle. One of the most interesting things in the 17th century is the fact that we see the decline of Spain as the greatest power in Europe and the rise of France. And the rise of France is being led very much by Louis XIV, who knows what he wants. And... He looks around and he thinks, no, no, look, I'm the greatest monarch in Europe. I want the greatest artist to come and work for me. And of course, the Pope says, well, no, actually, I mean, Benini's quite busy. They don't really want him to leave Rome. And Louis XIV says, no, well, actually, you know, we really need him here in Paris. And, you know, there's a lot of diplomatic toing and froing, and eventually the Pope is forced to let go to Paris, where allegedly Louis XIV wants him to design a new extension to the Louvre. And it's all a total disaster, because Bernini, you know, he doesn't really like leaving Italy. 
He doesn't like the French. He thinks the French are all the second rate, have no taste and no talent and so on. So the whole thing is a total disaster. His designs for the Louvre, which were actually beautiful, are never executed because they're regarded as wildly impractical. And um, he goes back to Italy, having sort of made his appearance in France, but having failed to make a permanent mark in France, other than to be regarded as a sort of egotistical, rather boorish Italian prima donna. <laughs> Do you think he regarded that as a failure? You know something, I don't think he ever regarded anything as a failure. I think he would have, you know, and this of course is, you know, crazy speculation. He would have thought that the failure was Louis the 14th. He would have thought, you know, isn't it funny how Louis the 14th failed to appreciate what a genius I am. That's a impregnable self-regard. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's, I mean, you know, you're talking about the impractical and, you know, let's come back to the, the center of this book or the kind of original inspiration. This crazy elephant, it had an obelisk on top of it, was a detail I don't think we've mentioned. Still has an obelisk on top of it, it's a detail I don't think we've mentioned yet. Why an obelisk and why an elephant? Because both of those things had great considerable meaning. Yeah, well, the Romans kind of fell in love with obelisks, really just around the time of, you know, around that classic time of Caesar and Cleopatra. And Egypt was hugely important to Rome, Firstly, because of its geopolitical role in control Egypt, you kind of helped to control Eastern Mediterranean. And secondly, Egypt was where the grain was produced, which was feeding the growing Roman population. So Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome. And when Octavian, who of course later became Emperor Augustus, conquered Egypt, he wanted to bring back some souvenirs. And, you know, hey, what's the best souvenir to bring back? Well, I can't move the pyramids but I can just about figure out how to move the obelisks. So obelisks began appearing in Rome as souvenirs and more trophies during the reign of Augustus and led to the situation where Rome, which now has 13 obelisks, has more standing obelisks than Egypt itself and more than any city in the world. Rather amusingly, obelisks eventually became a great sort of metropolitan status symbol. And I saw a clipping from a New York newspaper in the late 19th century, which was saying that New York must have an obelisk because Rome has got an obelisk, Paris has got an obelisk, London has got an obelisk. We can't be a great city unless we have our own obelisk. But Rome is very much a city of obelisks par excellence because they're a symbol of the importance of Egypt to Rome and also a symbol of Roman preeminence, you know? Hey, Egypt was the greatest civilization in world history, by the way, until we came along. And the fact that we could take what we wanted as souvenirs really shows how important we are as Roman. And they sort of liked to Christianize them, though, didn't they? I mean, they'd sort of stick a St. Peter on top or... Christian inscription around the bottom. Yeah, what they used to do, because they were pagan monuments, what they used to do is they used to exercise them and then put a cross on top. So they Christianized them and made them part of the symbolism of Holy Rome, you know, Rome, the holy city, all these pagan Egyptian obelisks. Though it's true, isn't it, that, that at least, I mean, obviously not during the years of sort of papal states, but in classical Rome, 
they would sort of adopt some of the Egyptian gods as well. There was a kind of syncretism that went on. Oh, totally. Yeah. The Egyptian gods became hugely important in Rome. Isis was hugely important, for example. And, you know, the persistence of Egyptian motifs is quite significant because we even find late medieval things in, in Rome that use Egyptian motifs. And there was also a fascination with Egyptian philosophy, Egyptian mysticism, some of which was meant to prefigure Christianity. So Egypt had this kind of weird grip on both classical Rome and Christian Rome. There's a lovely kind of side side issue or subplot in a book of them desperately trying to decipher hieroglyphics, which of course until the Rosetta Stone wasn't possible. But you've got, for instance, consulting on the crazy elephant with the obelisk on top is Athanasius Kircher, who sounds an amazing character, the sort of the last man who knew everything kind of figure. Yes, he was extraordinary because he was this German Jesuit who sort of claimed to be the person who knew everything. And um, all of his contemporaries believed that he was the last man who knew everything. Yet at the same time, people began to suspect that he actually didn't know very much at all. He was very good at winging it. And it was one of these things. He got himself in so deep by claiming to kind of master every sort of subject that um, when he didn't know the answer to something, he'd just kind of make it up. And he had all sorts of absolutely baloney theories about everything from geology to hieroglyphics. And people kind of believed it because Kircher, you know, he had a good act. He was, he was very fluent. He was enormously productive. He used to produce these huge books about every subject you can imagine. And um, he was one of the house intellectuals of the papacy in many ways an admirable figure because he actually did aspire to know everything but on the other hand possibly a bit of a snake oil salesman a bit of a fraud well the elephant then underneath that obelisk they have been important in in italian history since hannibal but there weren't many elephants around yeah. at that point were there no there weren't um occasionally elephants would come on tour of europe that was quite important in the 16th century, there was quite a famous elephant who was given to the Pope as a presence by the King of Portugal. And he became a great celebrity and um, the important sight to see in Rome. But elephants were also regarded, they were thought to be, and this you know, dates way back to you know, sort of Greek literature. Elephants were thought to be very spiritual animals. They were thought to be rather religious. They were thought to be models of chastity, you know, and uh, one of the ancient writers said, oh, what's so marvelous about elephants is they, you know, elephants only have sex if they want to conceive, you know, so elephants didn't go in for a lot of slap and tickle just for the heck of it. I think you can find the same theory expanded in Foucault's History of Sexuality. It goes right forwards. So, you know, elephants were uh, accredited with all sorts of, you know, rather marvellous symbolic value, which is why it wasn't regarded as particularly weird that uh, Bernini decided to um, memorialise his friend, Alexander, the statue of an elephant. 
when you say you've memorialised him, you you've played the suggestion that actually the there's a bit of a caricature of the Pope in the elephant. Well, yeah, that's possible because Benini Benini essentially invented the art of caricature, and his caricatures of significant Roman people really almost look like those sort of Hirschfeld caricatures, uh, which were, you know, from the 1950s and 60s in New York. They're very, very modern looking. So caricature was something that Bernini enjoyed. And if you look at the elephant of the Piazza della Minerva very closely, it's not anatomically the most correct elephant you've ever seen. There is something sort of spookily anthropomorphic, spookily human about it. And it has been speculated, and I don't think sort of crazily, it has been speculated that the elephant itself is actually a caricature of Alexander VII. And I think, you know, there's something in that. It adds a bit of uh, piquancy to the whole thing. It does. But another detail that adds some piquancy is that, you know, you've written a book about Benini and the Pope and the making of, of the Eternal City, focusing on this elephant, but Benini didn't carve the elephant, you reveal at the end. No. You know, these big artists' workshops, I mean, all the great artists had very large workshops. So, for example, I mean, you look at a lot of old master paintings, you know, quite often there'd be one specialist who'd come and paint the dogs in the picture. There'd be another one who'd work on the drapery, on the fabric, etc., etc. So the delegation of work was not um, particularly unusual in the 17th century. At one stage, I mean, Bernini employed almost every well-known sculptor in Rome because he had so many commissions. His genius was in the design, the conception, the overall approach to things. And then, you know, like everyone else, he delegated the work to his favorite followers. The elephant, as far as we know, and this is only as far as we know, was mostly carved by a, a very talented uh, follower of Bernini called Ercole Ferrata, but he would have done it under the very close supervision of Bernini, and Bernini probably would have contributed some of the finishing touches, etc., etc., etc. So it's not unusual for works of art in those days to be very, very heavily delegated because Bernini was running a big business. Now, I mean, you said earlier, which I thought was... <laughs> a nice way of expressing it, that, you know, you couldn't take Italian Baroque home to meet your parents. And this is no exception. I mean, you said that there's a strong suggestion that the elephant's about to take a shit in the general direction of the Dominican friary. Do you credit that? I mean, what, how do people yeah, come to that conclusion? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I saw one of the... Um, there's a much earlier, very large Bernini um, model of the elephant as he originally conceived it. And one of the differences between the original conception of the elephant and the way in which the elephant was finally executed is that the elephant of the Piazza della Minerva is kind of moving his tail off to the side. And it does seem as if he might be just about to have a rather large dump in the direction of the Dominican monastery, which would make sense because number one, Bernini had a very dirty sense of humor. He had a very scatological sense of humor. And in fact, dirty humor, practical jokes were very, very common 
amongst the upper echelons of 17th century Roman society. And Bernini, who was very close to the Jesuits, didn't really like the Dominicans very much. The Dominicans had tried to interfere hugely with the creation of the elephant because it had been found in the grounds of their monastery. So the idea that Bernini had the elephant putting, as it were, two fingers up to the Dominicans, I think um, really has a lot of credibility. Well, that's a, a lovely thought to end on. Lloyd, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.